So, in the Sermon on the Mount, just by way of review, I was thinking about how can I sort of encapsulate the the nine parts that we've gone through on this message before today. And I really think the key issue that Jesus is getting to in the Sermon on the Mount is, who will you worship? Who will you worship? Will you worship yourself or will you worship Jesus? And as I thought about that, I realized, I I thought back to when I was going through this organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. And they created a a little tract. It's very similar to some of the tracts we use. It's called the Four Spiritual Laws. And in the Four Spiritual Laws was this diagram that always stood out to me. And it's this one. I think I have it here. Yep. And so in life, we have two options. On one hand... On the left side, we can have a life without Jesus Christ. We can have a life where we're just not dedicated to Jesus and to worshiping Him and to worshiping God. And in that sense, this chair and this diagram is kind of like the throne of our life. And we put ourselves on that throne and Jesus is outside of our life. And then on the right side, of course, is a life entrusted to Jesus Christ. And that's where we let Jesus be on the throne. We worship Jesus. We're worshiping God. And our self is subservient to that. And that's what I think Jesus is really getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. And so today we're going to talk about prayer. Communicating with God. And Jesus gives us definitely some thoughts straight from God, about how to pray, and so we're going to talk about that. But what's interesting, when you start into this passage, Jesus does not start with how to pray. He starts with how not to pray. And so we'll just sort of tackle it in that order as well, too. And I see, as I read this, I really see three sort of how-not-tos that Jesus gives us, and we'll go through each one of those. So if you'd like to follow along, you can. Um, I'm not going to put the whole passage on the screen at once. We're going to do little pieces at a time. So if you'd like to get the context, you'd like to look at it, you can definitely pull out your device or uh, your Bible, whatever you've got there. Um, And we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 5, and go from there. So the first thing Jesus tells us about how not to pray is... Don't worship yourself. Which kind of sounds like a no-brainer, but let's see what he says. He says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So I think Jesus is saying here to don't worship yourself, but let's break this down a little bit. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. Well, who are the hypocrites? We've talked about this for a number of weeks. A hypocrite, in this sense, in in the context that Jesus is talking about, are people who are self-righteous, who've decided what righteousness is, and they're going to live it themselves. Right? One example of this, we talked about a number of weeks ago, is the idea that there's sort of sin out there, and, and a hypocrite is somebody who says, I'm going to draw a circle around sin and know how convenient that I'm not in that circle of sin. When in fact the reality of sin is that I'm standing inside that circle. Right? That's one example of a hypocrite. Another we talked about last week are talking about doing good deeds. 
doing righteous things. And so somebody who's doing those things as a way to gain favor with other people, Jesus says that's also being a hypocrite as well. And so today we see here, he says, don't be like the hypocrites. And he's talking about that in terms of prayer. He's talking about that who people who take their conversation with God and turn it into a show for other people. And why do they do that? They do that because they're interested in promoting themselves. And do I do that? Yeah, I do sometimes do that. And so I think we could sort of ask that question, man, that's kind of scary. He says, don't pray in front of other people. Should we just not ever pray in front of other people? Well, the answer to that is no, of course not. And if we look into the New Testament, we look at other places, Jesus himself prays in front of other people, and the apostles pray in front of other people, and we have a model of praying together corporately. And so it's not about whether you do or don't do, but that we have to be conscious about how we're praying in front of other people. We've got to be conscious and, and be aware and, and be aiming to be communicating with God and not just trying to build ourselves up in front of other people. And I think the easiest way to avoid that is if each one of us has our own private prayer life. As Jesus says, you go into a private place and you pray just you and God. And then have our public prayer flow out of that private prayer life. See, I think if we, if we go and we pray in a way that we're trying to receive attention, we're really just worshiping ourselves and we're not worshiping the Father. And so what happens, I put the, the diagram back on the screen here, we start to believe that, hey, when I pray, I'm getting power and glory in the eyes of other people. And so what happens is I'm putting myself back on that throne instead of having Jesus on the throne. And so that's the first thing Jesus gives us, is, is don't worship yourself. And then the second one is similar, is don't worship your method of praying. We go on to the next verses, 7 and 8. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So, Jesus says in this translation, empty phrases. Don't use empty phrases. Some translations use the term stutterer or babbling. Others use foolish talker, vain repetitions or meaningless repetitions. And so what are those? What, what are these empty phrases, these babblings, these stutterings? What is this? What is it about? Well, as I thought through this and prayed about it, I came up with four examples. Four examples. And so we'll walk through four examples of what I think Jesus is warning us against here. The first one is this. Shouting down others with prayer. Now, how does that happen? Well, we got an example of it. You see it on the screen here in Acts 19. And so, so Paul and the other believers are out, and they're recognized. It says when they recognize that Paul was a Jew, this group of these Greeks, not Jews, they're Greeks, pagans, 
they all for about two hours cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And I try to imagine what that, what's that like, right? Were they just like, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? Or was it more just like this monotone chant? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I am one with the force and the force is with me. I am one with the force and the force is with me. Right? Wanted to put in a Star Wars reference there. You got it. Right? So there's probably a few versions of what this could be, right? But the idea here is that this was a prayer that was really trying to shout down other people. It was trying to cover over other people, not let other people talk. We can see this kind of thing maybe not happening in in churches so much, but we see it happening in society, don't we? Just think of any sort of socio-political rally on any end of the spectrum. There's all kinds of chanting and all kinds of, let's drown out the opposition. Right? Or we think of it on a, a private level. We think about you know, things like yoga and some other things that have really introduced a lot of sort of chanting and repetition that's just trying to drown out other things, right? So that's a, it, it's part of our reality. And I think this is just one example of what Jesus is trying to warn us. Say, hey, don't make your prayers like that. Second example <clears throat> would be repeated standardized prayers. You know, an obvious example of this would be repetition of liturgical prayers and doing those for the sake of, oh, I'm going to repeat these things over and over and I'm going to find some sort of absolution or I'm going to find some sort of forgiveness or I'm going to you know, get closer to God or God's going to love me more. I think that's what he's talking about. I've always seen those kind of things like, um, you know, in, apparently in the olden days, I never had this happen to me, maybe some of you had this happen to you, I don't know, but the, the kid in the class who's in trouble and he has to write, I will not goof off in class, right? And he has to write that a hundred times, right? And he writes it a hundred times, he's been absolved from his goofing off in class. Right? Has anybody ever had that happen to them? Anybody? Yeah, maybe, okay, all right, it's not dead, or is it, maybe it's dead now, I don't know. Maybe they call that child abuse in public schools. I don't know. Right? Now, let's be really careful here. I I in no way mean that standardized prayers are bad, or that repeating prayers are even bad. In fact, we even have example of Jesus repeating prayers. In uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 39, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember the story? He goes and he prays and he comes back and the disciples are asleep and he kind of is frustrated with them and he, he goes away and he comes back. Well, it says this in 39, Jesus went away and prayed, saying the same words. So Jesus himself repeated prayers. It's a great example of this happening. And so there's nothing wrong with repeating prayers if we maintain a focus on God. Right? And there are, even today, and not so much in our denomination, but in many other sort of denominations, there are a lot of liturgical repeated prayers and books of prayers and other things, and I think those things can have great value if the person who's praying them takes their mind and is focused on God and not on the repetition and not on the method. If we lean on the repetition and not on the meaning, what are we doing? We're trusting a method. We're not trusting the Father. And so I think this is another thing Jesus is warning us against here as he's talking about don't worship the method. So a third example would be unintelligible prayers. 
You know, there are some in some churches who would promote the idea of we're going to go out and we're going to pray in heavenly languages. Right? I don't really want to talk necessarily a whole lot about that, but a lot of times, I've been to some of these kind of church services, you find people who are doing a lot of shouting and muttering, and there's a lot of chaos. And so what's often missing from these things is an understanding of what people are praying. And see, the Apostle Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians, he speaks to this. He speaks to this very issue and says, you know what, in church you probably shouldn't be speaking audibly unless there's people who can understand what you're saying. Chapter 14, verses 27 and 28, he says, if anyone, any speak in a tongue, you know, a different language, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Right? So Paul is saying, don't speak audibly unless there's someone who can hear and understand what you're saying. Also in chapter 14, he says this about himself. He says, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue that no one would understand. So I think that's something that Paul's talking about here and something that Jesus is talking about is that we've got to speak intelligibly. And so unintelligible prayers, Jesus is saying don't do that either. The fourth example, and I think sometimes we as, a, as evangelicals or as Protestants can sometimes say, I'm not, I'm not in any of those worlds. I don't do any of those things. I'm not, I'm not a victim of this. I don't, I don't, you know, I use empty phrases. But do we? Sometimes we can say, oh yeah, we have spontaneous prayers. But we repeat those. Right? Or we repeat certain words and phrases Right? Think about your own life, right? And you know, I've done this myself, but how many, time, how many times do we use the word just in our prayers? Lord, I just want to thank you. And then, Lord, if you would just do this. And, okay, that's fine. Just is kind of like, um, right? Oh, um, that's okay. But we've got to sort of think through those words, too, and be like, are we sort of leaning on those words? And then other times I think we also can you know, think that we're being spontaneous, but we're kind of just repeating the same things over and over in our supposed spontaneous prayers. Instead of having a relationship with God, we're just sort of running in some ruts that we've developed in our own life, thinking that we're being spontaneous. It's so easy for us to just let our prayers kind of dissolve into petitions, right? And just saying, God, give me this, and God, give me that, and God, give me this, right? But if we only ask God for goodies, it's just empty, isn't it? Isn't that an empty phrase? If all we're doing is just ask God for goodies, ask Him for goodies, and He doesn't give it, or whatever that gives Him. We're not having relationship with God, and we'll talk some more here in a minute about how to pray. And so I think this is another aspect. So four examples is the fourth example of how not to pray that Jesus is giving us. Right? So if we pray in these ways, we are going to tend to worship the method. We're going to lean on the method. We're not going to be looking to the Father and the relationship that we have with Him, and we're going to be putting ourselves on that throne instead of Jesus on that throne. And so those are two ways Jesus tells us how not to pray. And then the third one is this. 
think Jesus is saying, don't worship the results. And so if you're following along in your Bibles, does anybody see this scripture? Where Jesus says, and your Father will answer your prayers by giving you exactly what you have asked for in all times and all circumstances. Anybody see that verse? Right. It's not there. I made that verse up. So it's not there at the end. And so I think by omission... Jesus is sort of telling us how not to pray. He again goes on and gives us this model to prayer, and he doesn't say what's on the screen. He doesn't say, and God's just going to answer your prayers exactly how you want him to. And sometimes we can worship the results. We can worship the results, and we can say, man, it's all about the results. And there's certain people who do this kind of thing. I went and found this guy. It's almost funny, right? I had to black him out just in case any of you know this guy. I wouldn't want you to recognize him. And I blacked out his name too. But this is, a, this is like a legitimate thing. And there's this guy and he's got this free gift to you. And Blank wants to place in your hands the green prosperity prayer cloth, which this guy has personally blessed and anointed. Thousands of people around the world have used this biblical point of contact prayer cloth to receive abundant blessings of financial prosperity. To receive your prosperity handkerchief and instructions on how to use it, order yours today from this gentleman. Oh, wow. That's pretty extreme and almost kind of funny in some ways and kind of sad in some other ways. And there's all kinds of things, I think, that are wrong with this idea. But don't we often kind of do the same thing? How often do I effectively say to God, I want this, and so you're going to do it, God? I'm guilty of that. So I think in this passage by omission, Jesus is telling us that we should not expect that the answer we receive will be the answer we asked for. Why? Well, I think there's two reasons. The first reason is this. God is in control, and I am not. God is in control, and I am not. How could I ever expect my knowledge or whatever sort of wisdom I think I have to compare to the creator of the universe who has all-surpassing knowledge and all-surpassing wisdom? I can't. I can't even compare. How could I expect my planning? I might be the best organizer and I figure everything out. And, you know, I've got, sometimes I get proud of myself. I've got a to-do list that has 13 categories and I run through it every week. And I'm real excited. I check things off and I go, man, God has probably like a four-dimensional to-do list. How could my planning or my, this is what's got to happen. How could my thought of that have anything to compare with God's? God is in control. I love how in verse 8, Jesus says, Your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Before you even ask, He already knows what you need. Oh, that's so encouraging to me. God knows better than I do what I need, so far be it for me to demand of God that He do anything. Amen. Second reason is that if I do this, I'm going to worship the gift and not the giver. If I am just, I'm praying for results, and I want those results, I'm worshiping the results and not God the Father. I do that, I start to believe that what matters is not God, but what matters is what I have, or who I am. 
And now I've put myself back on that throne instead of Jesus. So I think that's what prayer is not supposed to be. Now, thankfully, Jesus wasn't just a negative Nancy, and he didn't just say, hey, here's things not to do, so don't do those things. He follows it by saying, here, here's how you should pray. Here's how to pray. Now, notice he doesn't say, here's what to pray. He says, here's how to pray. So let's look at how to pray. And I've got five points. And you know what? I actually think we could probably do an hour-long message on all five of these points. So hopefully you brought some lunch with you. And no, I'm kidding. We're going to just fly through these today. And there'll just be a little taste for you. And you could do your own study or we could talk some more. I'd be glad to talk with you about any of these things. And man, there's a lot in here that's really convicting to me where I go, Ah, I need to grow in praying this way. I need to grow in praying a lot more than I do. But here we go. Here's what he says. The first thing about how to pray is to be focused on God. Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this. What's the first thing he says? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Who are we praying to? God. The Creator. We're not praying to some cosmic genie in the sky. We're not praying to mathematical chance. We're not praying to the thin air. We're praying to the Creator, to God, and He's our Father. You know, there's a trend, and I, I see it a lot on, on Facebook, and I hear it from other places, typically from, from non-Christian places, but people will say things when something's going on with somebody else, and they'll say, hey, I'm sending good thoughts your way. That's fine. People can say whatever they want. Christians, don't say that. It's fine to say, hey, I'm thinking of you, I'm thinking about you, but don't say I'm sending good thoughts your way, because what you're saying is, I don't need God, I'm going to short-circuit him, I think my thoughts can control reality and change your world. They can't. Only God the Father can. Amen. Don't say I'm sending good thoughts your way if you're a Christian. I love this quote as we think about praying to God the Father. It's from Andrew Murray, he's a theologian in the 1800s. His book with Christ in the School of Prayer, he says this, In true worship, the Father must be first, and He must be everything. The sooner we learn to forget ourselves so that He may be glorified, the richer our own blessing in prayer will be. Wow, that is powerful, isn't it? In true worship, the Father must be first and everything. Not just first and then we get the other things. No, he's the first and the everything. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we think back to those things Jesus said not to do, making God the focus. That's our combat against worshiping ourselves, isn't it? We focus on the Father, we're no longer worshiping ourselves. Second thing Jesus says in verse 10, he says, Your kingdom come, speaking to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What are the implications of this? The implications are that God has a kingdom. Do I have a kingdom? Nope. Do you have a kingdom? Who has the kingdom? God has the kingdom. It's the second implication. God has a perfect plan. Do I have a plan? I've got a plan. Do you have a plan? Maybe, if you're that kind of person. But mine or yours is totally imperfect compared to God's perfect 
plan. Whose kingdom am I praying for? Whose kingdom am I pursuing? Whose will and whose perfect plan do I want to live in? And when we pray that way and we get our hearts into that place, we start to be able to do combat against the other thing. We're focusing on how God is in control. God is sovereign. We can't be outside of His will. It's pretty cool. The third thing Jesus says is that when we pray, we should ask for our needs to be met. He says, give us this day our daily bread. Doesn't say, give us this day our daily Ferrari. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you need a Ferrari. And I, don't, I can't imagine a scenario where that would be true. But when we take those first two things, once we get ourselves into the right position before God, and we've said, God the Father, you are the object of my prayer, you are first and everything. And then we say, God, your will is sovereign. You are in control. You have the great plan and the kingdom, and I do not. That puts us in the right place, in the right position, in the right posture to say to God, God, here's my needs. And yet we can even remember something Jesus said just two verses, three verses before this. He says, your father already knows. He already knows what you need. And yet even though he already knows what we need, we're supposed to ask him for it, aren't we? That's pretty cool. We know who's going to meet our needs. And we know that it's going to be within his perfect plan. The fourth thing Jesus tells us to do is to seek restoration. Pray seeking restoration. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. How easily we forget the nature of salvation. Amen. We forget how much of our debt has been paid. How much of our debt has been paid? All of it. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin and forgave all of the debt if we've received that free gift. So we put ourselves in that position. We go, wow, Jesus paid the penalty for my sins and I am forgiven. Wow, Lord, as I recognize that before you, I realize this relationship or that relationship or other things are broken that are not right. I need to have restoration there. And I can because you've restored your relationship with me, God. Jesus wants us to use prayer to leverage our remembrance of salvation into unity and restoration with others. And then finally, the fifth thing Jesus wants us to pray is to pray so that we're aiming for righteousness. Now, we've talked about this for a number of weeks, about making righteous choices. And Jesus adds it here as an aspect of prayer. He says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And how easily we forget that there is a spiritual battle raging in the unseen realm. Forget that, don't we? And so he's saying, hey, let's remember that in prayer. Let's remember there's stuff going on that we can't see and there's a spiritual battle. And prayer is the primary way we get to engage in that battle. So let's not forget that. And also by prayer we can be reminded, hey, man, I need to make righteous choices. God, help. Show me how I can make righteous choices. Again, not because making righteous choices get me closer to God's love, right? We said before, God's like love is pe- pegged out at the max. 
He gave up his only son. What possibly could be more loving than that? There's nothing. It's pegged at the max. We can make righteous choices because of that, because Christ died in our place. So that's what I think Jesus is saying how to pray. And so my sort of conclusion to that is that Jesus is telling us that prayer is a way of relating to God and that in it we can glorify and worship God. I thought, man, how, how could we wrap this up? What would, be, man, what would be the best way for us to wrap up a teaching on prayer? I know, why don't we pray? <laughs> All right, so if you would bow your heads and we'll pray here. Father, teach us to pray. Thank you for your words of life and your instructions to us about prayer. Thank you also for giving us a clear guidance about how not to pray. Lord, we we recognize first that you are in heaven and that you are the creator and that only you, only you, You are worthy of our worship. Nothing else is worth our energy except to seek your glory and the building of your kingdom. Lord, we recognize, secondly, that you have a plan. We recognize that you are sovereign, and we recognize that our knowledge, our understanding, our wisdom is but dust dust compared to your all-surpassing power and your all-surpassing knowledge. And so as we pray and as we present our request to you, we acknowledge that you alone know what is best for us and for others and for our community. And so, Father, we ask that you would meet our needs. Each of us faces physical and emotional and social and financial challenges in our lives, in our work, in our marriages, in our families. As Jesus said, you know that these needs exist. You know what they are even before we ask, even before we speak, even before we pray. But Lord, we ask anyway because you told us to and you want to relate to us and we recognize that you are in control and we recognize that you have a good plan for us we thank you for your forgiveness and we accept freshly your love given freely to us in the form of Jesus dying to pay the penalty for our sins God would you help guide us each one of us individually to live in peace with others and to extend a spirit of forgiveness to them And God, we ask that you would build us up and prepare us to engage in the spiritual battle that's raging in the unseen world. And God, we ask that you would do this by pointing us towards making righteous choices in our own lives. Father, would you convince our hearts of the good you have ready for those who choose to obey your commands and impart to us your strength so that we can follow through and obey. We lift up all of these things to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.